0: Live Inspire Together is our community of friends who are changing the world together, starting with their own life. In a world that often focuses on negativity, why not join me as I share the other side of the story on Together webcast so that we can connect on community, share inspiration, and take action to actually live it our next gathering is Saturday, March 27th. It is at nine o'clock in the morning, Central Time. I'll be sharing some inspiration. We'll bring on a special guest and we'll give you some clear ideas on how you can live into your bucket list. It's gonna be interactive. It's gonna be inspirational. It's gonna be awesome. So if you wanna learn more about this idea and how it's gonna impact your life, do me a favor, visit the show notes right now, or you can just text me at 314 314- 314 two zero seven five zero one zero type podcast 2021 and you'll get the information that you are seeking one more time the number is three one four two zero seven five zero one zero text podcast 2021 looking forward to seeing you saturday morning nine o'clock central time welcome to the live inspired podcast with john o'Leary
1: John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class
0: inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host,
1: John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. You know, years ago, I received the obituary of a 35-year-old. He was a husband, he was a father, he was a son, he was a brother. And as I read through this obituary, I recognized he clearly was a friend to many. The name of the gentleman who passed away was Aaron. And as I read this obituary, that eventually went viral. I never imagined that years later, I would have the opportunity and the honor of interviewing his wife. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing together today. Losing Aaron was the third unimaginable loss for Nora McInerney. You see, just weeks prior, she had a miscarriage, and then shortly after that, lost her father to cancer. Yet in the wake of loss after loss after loss, we get to assemble something new from whatever's left behind. You may recognize Nora as part of the story from her popular podcast called Terrible, Thanks for Asking, or her best-selling book, one of them is called No Happy Endings, another one is called The Young Hot Widows Club. In Nora's work, she shares about the painful experiences we all inevitably face, how to cope with the emotional aftermath and the important balance between finding a new happiness as well as holding space for the unhappy experiences that have shaped us. Today, Nora shares about her life's hardest moments and how she learned to get through them with grace and with humor and even hope. In a year riddled with so many painful losses for so many of us, with political divisiveness, with social isolation, and so much more, this conversation is a reminder that life will have incomprehensible tragedy and that the headwinds that we are experiencing right now are real and yet here's the great news and yet the foundation is firm you are not alone and the best days remain ahead my friends join me right now in welcoming our newest friend her name is nora mcinerney nora welcome to live inspired with john o'leary thank you for having me when people ask you who don't really know you Nora, huh? what, what do you do for a living?
1: What do you do for oh, a living, Nora? How do you I respond say, to that? I say, tell me what you do. I would rather not explain that to a person that I don't know or that I'm just getting to know. I will find almost any way to not talk uh, about my job because, and you're about to hear why, it, I have no elevator pitch. My elevator <laughs> it, pitch is like, if you were in the Willy Wonka elevator and all of a sudden like the elevator has gone off the, all of a sudden you're flying through the sky. Okay, you gotta go save your grandparents. The house is gonna get foreclosed. There's a lot of jumps that are made. If I'm pressed, if I'm truly like in a conversation where someone really, really needs to know, they're like, no, but really like, what do you do? I'm like, I I try to just say I'm a writer mm-hmm. and leave it at that. You know the follow-up, follow-up question. So There's what do you write question. about? Yeah. Have I read and then I say, I write funny things about sad stuff. I've written several books. I have a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking. And a, a, a very highly viewed TED Talk called We Don't uh, Move On From Grief, We Move Forward With It and all. And I have, a, I have a company called Still Kickin' and I started a group called the Hot Young Widows Club. My books are called No Happy Endings, the Hot Young Widows Club. And It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. And Bad Moms. Listing out all of those titles, it's just like, what is wrong with this woman?
0: The resume is thick and intense and <laughs> awesome. And I'm the kind That's of guy amazing. that wants to lean in and learn a lot more about it. I'm curious though, when you go through that spiel, how often do people, almost, you can almost see it in them physically where they start kind of turning away from you, like looking for their mini keys.
1: Very quickly. Or they're like, I'm so glad that you brought this up because- when I was 16, my best friend walked into, tra- like, they will just tell you a horrible ache that they have been carrying inside of them for forever. Right. There are typically two reactions. And one is like, that's so sad. Why would you do that? And the other one is from people who have been through a thing yeah. or watched someone else go through it. And so they're sort of adjacent to, you know, suffering or grief or sorrow of any kind. They're like, oh, and I think everyone eventually will understand it. But in the meantime, if I met me, I would be like, oh, gross. And just look for someone else to talk
0: mm-hmm. I'm glad I've oh, met you today. And I know our listeners are going to love to hear your story <laughs> and your loss and what you've learned and what it means for the rest of us. So let's mm-hmm. let's leave Phoenix for a little bit. We'll come back to it. Yeah. yeah. We're way back up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Just talk mm-hmm. about growing up and what your life was like.
1: Minneapolis is such a cool place. It is a big small town as a fifth generation Minneapolitans. It was a place that was filled with history for my family, the kind of place where, you know, when you go to high school with somebody, you know, your dad, your dad drops you off and they're like, huh, I forgot what her dad's name is. Pretty sure it's Mike. Pretty sure, you know, we met in 1965. His brother was a real son of a and you're like, Dad, I'm not asking her what her dad's name is. Like we haven't even met. It's my first day of high school but then it turns out your dads went to high school together. Your moms went to high school together. Your great grandparents went to the same church. It's just that kind of place. I really loved growing up there. I had three siblings, still currently have three siblings. My dad wrote infomercials for a living. That is still one of my favorite mediums. Truly. I will.
0: I love an infomercial. Have you ever been so moved by an infomercial you picked up the phone and called?
1: I've not bought anything from an infomercial, but thank God people do because that's how I got to go to college. Okay. <laughs> John, every single person who who saw that ab product and thought that will change my life. I thank you because that paid my tuition. You know, depending on the day, you either think like, wow, you had a great childhood, or you're like, man, was it? And now I'm, today's the kind of day where I'm like, I think I did. I think I had it pretty good. Truly nothing bad happened. I grew up vaguely sort of Catholic, went to Catholic school. I mean, didn't really know a lot about life. Truly. I knew that life was going to be hard. I think that was something that I understood as a kid. And I was always very obsessed with death. I was very, like very, very sensitive to the suffering of others very, very highly attuned to other people's feelings and had kind of like just an innate sense that bad things could happen at any time, even though I could not have articulated that to you. I was a worried child living in a house where like things were like pretty fine.
0: You went to Xavier, what was the major? What were you uh, hoping to do after you graduated?
1: No hopes, no dreams, no interests. John. Real lost as a person, okay? Just like, I know I have to go to college. I know I'm already here when I was like, I don't know if I really should, maybe I could take a year off. I feel like kind of depressed. My dad was like, well, when I was your age, I was in Vietnam. I was also depressed. I also didn't love it. It's like, okay, it's really hard to win that argument. I'll stay. I tried on every major. I was like, what about marketing? What about communications? What about History. What about social work? What about English? Ended with English. This, what do you do with an I English? I think I could just here's the the absolute terror of being an English major. You could do anything or nothing. Yeah. And at first I was like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to law school. That's respectable. I'll be impressed by that. All my choices were basically based around what can I do that will sound impressive to someone else? Yeah. Or what can I do that will meet some expectation of what people have of me because I was a gifted child, or I was smart in high school, what can I do that will fulfill some expectation of me? And, and no interest in who I was or where I was going, just desperately seeking any paved path
0: forward. Okay. I'm trying to compare yourself to everybody else. And, and I had always assumed when I was a youth that you grew out of that. I assumed my parents were completely comfortable in their own skin and never compared themselves to a neighbor, someone they went to church with, or that you stopped looking in the mirror as you became an adult or a parent. And as you get older, you realize it might get worse. Like the high school cliques don't end just because you graduate.
1: No, no, they get weirder and the stakes are higher, but also like lower. Now I can look back on like my teenage years, my early twenties, my mid twenties, and have so much compassion for that person. When I like beam that into every young person I, I, I meet, we have a 19 year old and I'm just like, this is a part of your life. This is the time where you should be learning and learning just for the sake of learning and all, it's all learning. Every relationship, every friendship, every, every interaction with you that you have with somebody where you're insecure or you're overconfident, whatever it is, like all you are doing is learning about yourself, about the world, you're gathering information, that is okay. You are not supposed to be somehow fully formed because you're 19 and you got into college or because you're 22 and you just finished. Are you kidding? Like you may never be fully formed. You may always have like a soft little doughy middle or at least that's how I still am.
0: That doughy middle that you were and still are at at what mid-20s you meet a a young boy a young man named Aaron. I mean
1: in the Midwest in your mid-20s a man who is 30 is definitely I was like oh my god he's a man he's 30 he's in a different decade of life he owns a home he has a car the bar was very low John. What about this
0: man that you just fell for?
1: He was so comfortable being alive and being a person and he also had this way of making Everyone else feels like they belonged the night that I met him. It was, we were at this big art opening. I I just could not like function in a large group of people. I did not know. So I'm sitting there with like my two cousins we're in a closed circle and he comes over and introduces himself. Then he, he's like, well, after this, we're going to go to this bar. You should come. And I was like, oh my God, this guy obviously is in love with me. And we (laughs) walk in my cousin and I, he's at a table with like 40 people. And I think oh my, I'm so dumb. He just invited everyone. And he's sitting next to like four girls. So I'm like, how can I leave without him noticing me? He stands up, waves this over, remembers my cousin's name, finds two chairs for us, introduces us to every person around the table. Every person around the table was from a different part of his life, from his high school or his community college or his art school that he went to or his different jobs. Like He just brought people together and was like, oh, now we're. Now now we can start because you're here. And he just had that ability. He had so much fun with life. Yeah. Like he, his life was not a problem he was trying to solve in any way. He was just buoyant. I had never been around a person who was so interested in me and who just liked me and who I didn't have to perform for or try to, you know, morph into like so many relationships in your early twenties. I started doing things that I liked to do. When I started dating Aaron, I had always loved to write. No one I ever dated cared about my writing at all. Nobody was interested. Like, he was so into it. It's almost sad to say, like that was the exception and not the rule. But it was. Wow. <laughs> I know it's so embarrassing, and it's also still you know, as old as time.
0: Well, I don't think you're alone in that. Where you might be alone is where you found this remarkable guy who loves you for you, and you love him. Yeah him. Yeah. And you have the fairy tale relationship going on. Mm-hmm. And then at age 27 at his office, things, did they begin yeah. to change in a profound way. Would you, would you share how you learned that he had a seizure at his office?
1: Aaron, at this point was 31. I was at work. We worked at different ad agencies. Aaron and I are chatting online. It's, it's 2011 people. We did not have iMessage on our devices. We, you, you had to use Gchat. Kids stopped responding. And I was annoyed. <laughs> like, are we, are we going to Home Depot or not, sir? And I assumed he had just stepped into a meeting. And I got a call and it was him. But when I answered, it was one of his colleagues. The voice said, I- I'm at work with Aaron. He's having a seizure. Has he ever had a seizure before? I assumed it was a joke because your brain wants to believe anything other than what's happening. My boss called my mother and she just drove me to the ER, dropped me off. And I walked into the ER and said, "I'm looking for someone. Is he here?" As if I were checking into a hotel. We spent the whole day in the ER as he went through all of these tests, and they found that he had maybe it was a heart murmur. So maybe that's why. And you know, we had just revarnished our floors uh, in his house, so maybe it was that. You know, you 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 just never know. Is he's stressed mm-hmm. out? Um, has he been sleeping? And they wanted to do a MRI. They admitted him. And I was like, well, who knows why? You know, like truly just all this magical thinking, like I'm 27, he's 31. We're just like, well, yeah, they have to admit you if you've been here for four hours. It's only right. Like telling each other, like it's nothing. This is just what they do. They just can't let you leave. Who knows why it was because he had a brain tumor.
0: Nor, I mean, when they yeah. Come out. And they yeah. let you know that they found a tumor in his brain of all places. Like what goes through your mind? You're, you're, you're a baby, 27 years mm. old, got your entire life. And he's got his entire life in front of both of you.
1: And I actually wasn't there when the doctor said it, cause I'd gone home to get his clothes. He'd given me a specific list of the things that he wanted. I breezed into that house. Like it's fine. This is for one night. I remember driving back to the hospital October 31st, it's 2011. It's that just inky darkness that the Midwest gets, you know, by that point at, at night in the fall. And it's so dark and it's so cold already. And so the sky is so clear. I have never been to this hospital before in my life. I need a map to get there. I remember parking and I go upstairs and Aaron's mom is in the hallway and she's just looking at me like everything is broken. And when I walked in, All of his friends were against a wall, like they'd been waiting for me. When I walked in, he said, hey, and he smiled. And then he said, they said, I have a brain tumor. And I just remember dropping all my things and climbing up onto his bed and like holding his head. He had the biggest head, the sweetest head and just being like, no, no, no. And that night I proposed to him and we had talked about getting married, but in that really, like at some point, he said two things that night. And the first one was, how will we pay for all this? And he also said, "Um, but I could die. That was true. And also I didn't care. If anything, I had more clarity in that moment than I had in my entire life, which is, this is life. Like, this is what it all is to love someone is to guarantee that one of your
0: hearts will break. You've said that before. And I've heard you share that not only in your books, but also in your Ted talk. And people laugh when you're like, I've done the research. 100% of us are going to die. Like, you know, people laugh, but it's true. If you love someone, you or that other person's heart at some point, without doubt, it will break. So I'm, I'm curious, you get engaged that night, you kiss and say that, hey, we're, we're going to do life together as long as we yep. can you do life together. And then you begin this journey forward. W- were there points where you were truly, totally optimistic, rationally so, that you had this thing licked or was it a downward slide the entire time?
1: It was so delusional. And I think part of it was, it was it was by design. Aaron and I both Googled glioblastoma one. And we saw that the average, like a good lifespan after you've been diagnosed is five years. The average is three to five years. We both saw that. We both were like, close it, throw the phone. Yeah. I had assumed before this that you would take that information and you would, I don't know, live life to the fullest in whatever Tim McGraw song that would mean, right? Like you got to... Go jump from, out of an airplane and and do you, you know All rides?
0: We're just, we're gonna ride. do it all.
1: Well, if that's the kind of life you lived, sure, that's living to the fullest. But most of us actually live like really blissfully average lives. For us, we got a house and we had a baby. We were still putting money in a four hundred one k. We we had told the doctors at that first meeting like we don't want to ever have a countdown, even if you think we need one. It's like just tell us what the next thing is that we have to do and we'll take it appointment by appointment. And I think we got very good at living our lives and having the sickness, having cancer, take up the space that it needed, but not being like the first thing, Yes. not being like the biggest thing in the room at all times, even though, There were times where it absolutely was, but they took out his brain tumor and then we saw the MRI and it didn't look like it was there anymore, but his oncologist was very honest with us, which is like, well, that just means like those little cells are sneaking in there. And every six weeks you get an MRI and you would look at it and be like, is it back or not? I don't know. But about a year later, I was pregnant and it was back and he had to get another brain surgery. He had to go through all of this all over again. That was incredibly frightening. I think we got very good at living as though Aaron was not really sick, even though he was. Part of that is youth. Part of that is the way that we wanted to do it. And part of it too, I think made it hard for the people who did love Aaron, who were not his family, To really kind of get it and understand and be able to show up in a meaningful way. You know, we'd be at work. They would just assume like, oh, he's fine. Look at, he's at work.
0: We're moving toward fall of 2014 when your entire world just begins collapsing all around you. Over the course of a month and a half in fall 2014, and correct me on the dates, October 3rd, you lose your pregnancy, October 8th, you lose your dad, and November 25th, you lose your husband. Yeah, In a, a period of you know, 40 days, your baby, your daddy, your husband.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Not the best series of events.
0: Um, Looking back on it, is there anything that you wish you and Aaron would have done? Whether that's words, a trip, party, friends, living funeral, anything that you wish you would have done that maybe one of our listeners might benefit from thinking through as they endure eventual losses in their own life?
1: I don't spend a lot of time on that because I know why they didn't happen. I wish I had more video of Aaron. The minute right. you turn on a video camera, everything changes. It's not the same. People don't act the same, you know, like, you know, when you're being taped, like it, it changes the energy of a room. I mean, the technology on iPhones was not that great. And so the videos that we have are very few and far between. And so I don't have a lot of his mm-hmm. voice. And i had asked Aaron, would you want to record something for Ralph? Would you want to write something for Ralph? He was like, <laughs> and as much as I would, you know, love to be able to hand Ralph a stack of envelopes filled with wisdom from his dad that wasn't who Aaron was Mm. it just was not the kind of thing that he was going to do and I think that it would have been harder for him if I would have really really insisted on those things I I wish he would have done less chemo the fall is when things really really started to fall apart but I could tell sooner I could tell in like April May June that these were our last, like I could just tell. And he was still going in and getting this inpatient chemo for three days a month and he would stay in the hospital and it was a lot and it made him feel terrible. And I just think, what if we didn't? But we did. But we did. So there's all those sort of like feel good things that you could do. And also I am a writer and I don't know that I would be able to do that for my kids. And I've also heard from a very small sample of people, but I have heard from some adult children who got that from their dead parents when they were growing up and for whom those letters were actually extremely difficult because their parent is not somebody that they know and they can sense their parents yeah, no, like desperation in these letters. Or now my 21st birthday is about this letter. Now my wedding is about this letter. You know, There's nothing that we didn't do that I wish we'd done. But the things that I'm glad we did, John, is I'm glad we wrote his obituary together. I'm glad that we planned his funeral together. I'm glad he made the playlist. Okay. Because those were important things to him. And I'm glad that we made living wills. And then we made an estate plan. I'm very glad we did those things. Obituaries are, I had struggled to write my dad's after he died. My dad was an infomercial writer, John. He could have written an amazing obituary. Why didn't we just ask him? What's important? What do you want in there? Besides the who, what, when, where, why, besides people showing up at St. Helena's for ham sandwiches after, like, <laughs> what do you, what do people need to know about you? And instead, my siblings and I tried to write it, you know, as a committee and, you know,
0: doing things by committee, it's miserable. Years ago, your husband's obituary was forwarded to me. And I, I totally um, forgotten about it. But then when yeah. I reread it in preparation for today, reading about yeah. you know, Sp- Spider-Man. Like we found yeah. out who Spider-Man actually was. It's yeah. it's him, your husband. Yeah. Yeah. It's Ralph's dad. And mm-hmm. the way you blended both vibrant life and just like the you know, the rawness of raising a child and losing that child, leaving him behind and leaving behind a wife, but yeah. also blending that with what Gwen Stefani or whatever. Yeah. It, you know, the, the humor that spoke to who who he really is at his core and who you guys were as a couple. It was a beautiful obituary. Yeah.
1: The best lines were his, that obituary was exactly how he was. Like it, it got all the way to you, right? All the way to you and you read it and you felt them, even though you did not know him. That's what he was so good at. Like making sure everyone was invited. That was important to me because it it is such a responsibility to try to summarize somebody else's life for them and to try to make sure that you're getting the right things in there. It's a huge job. It is such a relief to know that he was remembered the way that he wanted to be, you know, which is like not just the sad story, but all those other things, which is like what really makes up a life. That was the final one, but otherwise, it's like, I lost that pregnancy. We were so excited for Ralph to have a sibling. Like I just wanted Aaron to like be as much of a dad as he could be. I knew it was it was absolutely bonkers to try to have another baby, knowing I would definitely be on my own at some point. And also it made total sense. I felt like I broke his heart. I felt like even though you know it's not your fault. It's it's a numbers game. It happens all the time. One in four pregnancies, right? It, it just happens. It just happens. There's no real reason for it. I went to the doctor, like I was so drugged. I had to just like get home as soon as possible. And Aaron had an art show that night and I did not want him to have to miss it. I knew it was going to be his last one. And so I'm like at the show, bleeding, going through absolute hell and just like standing there being like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so excited. His, his art, it was a t-shirt show, yeah. an art show, but t-shirts. And he was like sold out and it was doing so well. And I was so proud of him. And I was just like, oh my God, these people have no idea. Like these people have no idea. And can they tell the left side of his body isn't really working anymore. That his eyes are sort of like drifting and I could see it finally. And I remember being like, oh God, like this is all going to happen. And yeah. I knew my dad was sick and he was in the ICU. And he had been diagnosed with cancer like five months before and done like a little bit of chemo and been like, no, Um, it's terrible. I hate it. And uh, that was probably from, you know, agent orange and being in Vietnam. When Aaron was sick, I just thought like, well, I have my dad and that'll be okay. And after my dad's funeral, it just got worse. And watching someone die of any kind of cancer and I, and, and also especially brain cancer, it's just you know, your brain is an important part of who you are holds a lot. And so to watch like all of those like functions, all of those like bits of you just be like slowly trimmed away yes. is really excruciating. And we talk a lot about, and it was horrible. And I spent those like 40 days on absolute autopilot. The emotional part of your brain can like kind of shut down and your body and your executive function can be like, we'll take this here. We'll, we'll make sure you can check off a to-do list and drop the kid off at daycare and maintain your ability to live. And even though we know like life is not certain, there are moments, very brief moments where we truly live with that awareness.
0: I'm going to quote you because I think this is um, relevant to where so many of our listeners are or one day will be. But you wrote, because we are not a country that respects life, we are also not a country that respects death. And then you go on to say, I think the average time off that employers are typically required or at least give to their employees who have lost a spouse or a child or a parent 7 months except that's not the amount of time it's 3 days you get 3 days off to grieve a husband who is no longer alive or to grieve a child or to grieve a parent talk about that
1: yeah 3 days and that's if you're lucky and that is if you have a full-time job with benefits and what if you lose your cousin what if you lose your best friend like what if you lose like the uncle who raised you I guess you could take PTO, maybe everybody could pool it for you, but we are a country where you are lucky to have three days of bereavement leave and that will get you possibly through to a funeral. And then you're just sort of expected to show up and update those PowerPoints and, you know, whip through those Excel documents and and make some, make some presentations and close some sales or make a widget or do whatever it is you do as if nothing has happened, even though absolutely everything has happened. And the really acute stage of grief can last up to 18 months. And grief is a physiological process too. Like you feel grief in your body. Your brain is not working at maximum capacity. I reached out to Aaron's neuro-oncologist afterwards and I was like, I think I have a brain tumor. And he said, no, you are just sad. I, this is what your brain does. Okay. <laughs> like your brain is is pretty occupied right now. Like you're not going to be able to remember, you know that you left the milk on top of the car more than once. Okay, yes, you recycled your car keys. Okay, it happens. Like your brain is just so full right now. And it should not be that surprising to us because also if you have a baby in this country, you also don't get leave. You can, and very, very, very many women are um, at work just a few days later. I was at work a few days after I had a baby, a few days after I had a baby, because you're just supposed to be able to carry on as though nothing has happened. I, I find it extremely inhumane. And as an employer, as, as, a, as a manager, as whatever, I don't want to perpetuate that. And I know as a small business, there's a cost to doing things the right way. And it is a cost that I am willing to bear. And I guarantee you a fortune 50 company also could. Okay. I, if I can give somebody six weeks off because paid, because their, their dad is their dad and mom are both going through huge health crises and they have to be there. Pretty sure it could be figured out.
0: You have lost your father. You lost a child. Now you lost your husband and you're a mom of a baby, 22-month-old yeah. little Ralphie. Yeah. What, talk about how you, how do you talk about death and life and memories and daddy when yeah. a child's mind, I mean, he probably thinks he's in the room right next to you. Like, oh, he's in the yeah. chair. He's in the bed. He's upstairs. He's outside. Can I go find him? How, how do you yeah. talk about death when it's always in front of you, but probably painful to even yeah.
1: bring him? I have never minded talking about Aaron. It's always been a pleasure for me when Ralph was two, you know, their understanding of like, what it means to die is really limited. I mean, you know, you can watch The Lion King and even that's like a little vague. So Ralph used to say, he was just two, he would he would say Papa all the time. Like Papa, as if he was seeing him, as if he were in the room, which made me feel like he was. Now Ralph is eight. He's still grieving every milestone that goes by every big experience Ralph lives with an awareness that he has a dad he has a dad who is dead he has a dad who he didn't get to know he also has my current husband who he calls Maddie daddy or or daddy calls Aaron papa
0: with everything else as you're going through this process what what were some things that you, you were doing that retrospectively really were healthy it was the right way to grieve
1: canceling things not showing up to stuff honestly just being like nope staying home staying home with my kids. I spent a lot of time on my phone and I'm sure at the time people thought that was unhealthy. And also that was a part of grief for me. You know, Google Photos will serve you these, this is your life. You know, this is your life a year ago. I could go back a year. I could go back two years. I could go back three years and see him healthy. I could see so much possibility. I am glad also that I'm glad I quit my job. I could not do it. I emailed a couple people who I trusted and I said, I will take on any kind of really low level freelance work, anything that I can do at like two in the morning, anything where I don't have to go to a meeting during the day or speak to anybody. I just need to be able to cover my mortgage. That's all I need. And that was doable for me. That gave me faith. It gave me space to like also write meaningful things. I got to write my first book in that time. That was a very healthy exercise. And then the rest was just deeply unhealthy. But I'm like, just take your time. That's what I tell everybody. I'm like, you cannot rush through it. And I was very, very much hoping to rush through it. I was very much hoping to like be okay as soon as possible so that I wouldn't have to like avert anybody's eyes in the grocery store because I could tell that they were beaming pity at me. And so I didn't have to pretend and that I just didn't have to be sad. I just didn't want to hurt. And it's like the hurt is a part of it. That's where all the growth is. Like, you can't just heal a broken bone by being like, it's better now. I don't need the cast. Like, no, you, you do need the cast. You do need to sit still. You do need to be in it. You do need to be inconvenienced. And it's the same for the emotional anguish of grief. Like you got to sit with it.
0: You mentioned the grocery store and and that's probably where many of your worst encounters probably came with well-intended friends. Yeah. So, I'm curious, what are a couple things that people said or did for you that you, gosh, people do not do this or do not say that? And then to flip it on its head, what are a couple things that people did yeah. that were just beautiful and so life yeah. gave?
1: So much was people showing up in these ways that I never would have asked for. I tell people that. Y- your job, if you are trying to talk to somebody who is suffering in any way is not to fix it. And once you get that out of your head, you can actually say something productive. There's, There's no way that anything empathetic will follow the words at least or just or should or but those will not help. The majority of people showed up so beautifully. I know how hard it is to reach out. You don't need to do anything other than just acknowledge what is and let somebody know that you are thinking of them. So a couple of thought starters. Hey, I heard what happened. It's terrible. I'm thinking of you. The best way that I can describe this is with a Venn diagram. What should you do? You do what you can do. Okay. What is in your capabilities and what you will do. The asterisks for both of those are what you can do and what you will do competently, consistently if possible, and humbly.
0: Mm.
1: Like just do a thing. And if all you can do is send a text, great. If all you can do is send them a gift card, awesome. If all you can do is show up and shovel the 18 inches of snow that just got dumped on their sidewalk, like my widowed friend, Britt, just had a friend do out of nowhere, do that. You just do a thing, that's all.
0: Nora, do you you like when people randomly bring up the name, Aaron, do, do you like, oh, I
1: love it. Um, you know I mean? It's like music to my ears. I love it.
0: I love it. That it, Cause a lot of people think,
1: Oh, don't talk about it. Aaron. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Especially, I love it. Especially in front of Ralph. Yeah. Or your new husband, because it, it brings yeah. up all these memories of, of what we lost and the pain that we're still trying to work through. And, and I always wonder, is that true or no? Do people love the, the, the name? love lost it. People's.
1: Number one thing I hear from people not Young Widows Club, people who have lost children, people who have lost partners, people who have lost siblings. Like they don't even, they hardly ever get to say that name to hear it roll off somebody else's lips is so wonderful. And if you, the, the most beautiful thing is realizing how many parts of your person live in other people. And I got an email sometime last year from somebody who had found my book or my podcast, realized they went to college with Aaron and sent me a bunch of memories of him. Bits and pieces of him, I didn't even know existed, didn't even know I was missing. And I read them out loud to Ralph. It made his day because now Ralph is really realizing like, oh, my dad was a person.
0: Your husband, Matthew must be a remarkable guy. And I say that because you brag so often about Aaron and you speak about Aaron in present tense. Like he's here, Aaron, right around the corner. And most of us have a jealous bone somewhere in our body or Mm -hmm. several hundred jealous bones. And for you to have had a wonderful marriage Mm -hmm. and for you to again, have a wonderful marriage and to hold two Mm -hmm. in both hands and to be okay with what you've lost and grieved that and also love what you had. And also to be able to love boldly today, abundantly with what you currently have. Mm -hmm. That's a delicate dance for many of us to move forward with.
1: Matthew's a completely different kind of person. And I've never done what he's done and he's never done what I've done. So we have a lot of respect for each other and right. for what brought us together. And I mean, you know, it, it, like he's been in love, like he's had a family just like I have at, at one point he really loved that version of his family too. Like he lost a version of his life that he wasn't ready to lose either. Our losses are really different. And also I think we just have a lot of respect for each other. Part of falling in love with Matthew was that he gave me like space to actually deal with my grief space that I did not have before. I could not do it when I was a hundred percent on my own with Ralph. I just was so focused on like trying to move on. I was not trying to move forward. I was just trying to be like, I have to get, I have to get away from how much this hurts and falling in love with somebody and having them be present. It does truly show you everything you lost. Mm. It's so hard to explain, but I think I just feel so lucky for the kinds of love that I have found that they just feel very safe.
0: I wrote down after reading your book, Probably 15 different quotes, but I'm just going to share a couple right now. And it comes from the book, No Happy Endings, a memoir that you wrote. It's a beautiful book. The first one is no feeling is final. Just tell me what that means. No feeling is final.
1: It's It's from a poem, Rainer Maria Reiki. That is the promise of life, right? Not that things are just like fully horrible or that things are fully beautiful, but that they are both and that the feeling is not final. No feeling is final. There's always more. And where you are now is just where you are now.
0: Even if you are surrounded by people you love, figuring out grief is a solo project.
1: Yes, unfortunately. I lost Aaron. I was, as far as I know, his only wife. Um, he was his mother's only son, and he was his sister's only brother, and he was my brother's brother-in-law, and he was my mom's son-in-law, and he was you know, a different friend to every one of his friends. And so we all lose different versions of the same person. You want grief to be, and, and in so many ways it can be, and is, there are communal aspects to it. And yet also it is something that you have to do on your own. I, no one could do it for me. I could not do it really like with my siblings because we've lost such different versions of Aaron so that contributes to the loneliness of grief. You know, we're all just going through it differently. And this year, Aaron's death anniversary is always November 25th. My brothers and sister did not call me or text me. I was so hurt. And I fired up that group text and I wanted to come in hot. Instead, I said, I know you love me. This is what I need on days like this. My brothers were like, oh, wow, we would want the exact opposite. We were raised in the same house, John. We do not grieve the same way. Isn't that bananas? It's just so eye opening for me to be like, these people know me arguably better than anyone else. And even they got it wrong. So how often can we get it wrong for people that we actually do care about? Like we all want to get it right.
0: Well, I think that goes to this next question that I wrote down. And it's part of the challenge of living according to other people's expectations is that they are subject to change without notice. And then you go on to add, I was too sad for some people. I was not sad enough for other people. Yeah. When yeah. you live trying to fit in someone else's expectation, you're just you're just doomed.
1: If you are if you are a somewhat self-aware or perceptive person, you can read a room. None of my friends, none of my acquaintances had lost their husband. Okay, none of these people had gone through what I had gone through, so of course they were curious. Of course they had like some sort of picture of what they thought it would look like or what it should look like. And that had literally nothing to do with me. And it had everything to do with the kinds of movies they'd seen. Mm -hmm. And it is very, very, very hard. And they tell grievers, especially fresh ones. I'm like, you do not let anyone else shit on you. You don't shit on yourself either. You don't need to try to judge your own grief against some invisible loss yardstick that somebody else is holding.
0: I know my mom's listening right now, Mom. It's spelled S H O U L D. That's what
1: yes. she S H O U L D. Okay,
0: good, Mom.
1: Miss O'Leary, I'm sorry. I do have a disgusting mouth, and John will leave out all the other words I've said.
0: The final quote I want to share before we get into the Live Inspired Seven is: "In your quoting Ernest Hemingway, what a, what a life! But uh, the world breaks everyone, and afterwards, many are stronger in the broken places.
1: <laughs> many are not, but many are. Many are. Well, one like." look at you, look at your mom, actually. I mean, I know you went through it, but like, also Mrs. O'Leary, like watching that old video of you, John, I was like, Oh my God, his mom, like the, Oh my God. I watched an interview of your mom. I cried my face off. I mean, you're amazing, but let's talk about your mom. Okay.
0: I've had several books published and refused to put my face on the front of them because I recognize what a small part I play in these, in these stories. Like I I sit even today on the shoulders of greatness Mm -hmm. and I can see no one greater in my life uh, than my mom and dad. They just were extraordinary human beings. They are extraordinary human beings. They're great leaders. They guided us through grief. They refused to allow us to make excuses for long. Great examples. So yeah, Mrs. O'Leary, mom, what a great example she was and is.
1: What a good example. I never thought that I had any kind of strengths. Nothing had, had truly bad had happened to me before Aaron got sick. And I had assumed that I would be incapable of handling anything difficult. And I'm sure that you have encountered this too. Maybe someone here is just story and like, could never, could never. Like I could, I just, I have no idea. How would your mom do? How would you do? I could never, which is like, well, you might have to someday is the thing. Like you literally do not have a choice. It's not as if, disaster strikes and you are immediately strong. I I had a lot of reset uh, emotional bones. I had a lot to heal. The people who I have met through my work, through terrible things for asking or through still kicking are people who have been through incredibly difficult things. And they're still here. The strength that we speak of is not like, Oh, you have to go do something like that is like super big and super flashy. It's like through strength is mostly a whisper. It is not something that, that you, that you have to visibly
0: flex for other people. What I'm hearing you say is it's, yeah. it's not in the mountain climbers. It's not in a winning touchdown. It's not the big things that we love to celebrate in this culture. It's in the little things of getting out of bed and trying to make your bed and trying to take care of yourself and get in and out of the shower and continually live your life going forward. That's hard, that is really, really hard.
1: After that first book, after It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too, and I get these on Instagram now where people are like, God, I wish I was doing better. I wish I was doing more like you, or I don't know why things are so hard for me. Things are so hard for you because we are living in a pandemic in one of the most emotionally, politically, and socioeconomically trying times in American history. That's why things are so hard for you because they're hard. You are exhibiting great strengths by existing in this world. Thank you, John, for acknowledging the people who got out of bed today, who got dressed, who brushed their teeth. It's never ever been easier to compare ourselves. And I want people to give themselves that same compassion, and empathy and curiosity and respect that they extend to other people and to give themselves the same grace and the same benefit of the doubt to be like, you know, honestly, maybe you are doing your best today and doing your best today meant you're still wearing the shirt you slept in, but you logged on to Zoom.
0: Okay. (laughs) So we're going to begin moving toward the, the, I was about to say finish line. It's really the starting point. Some of the books are called No Happy Endings, The Hot Young Widows Club. It's okay to laugh, right? It's cool too. The podcast, terrible. Thanks for asking. And you are not-for-profit, which is just phenomenal. What you're doing over here is still kicking. A lot of work. You've got a lot of words, a lot of heart in the world, trying to love people, trying to heal them, trying to let them know it's okay, that they're not alone. And it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be sad and still hope for the promise of tomorrow. Like it's okay to have the yes and. Is there a letter or an email or a phone call or a random bump in in an airport that you've received where you're like, gosh, John, out of all the work that I've done, this is one of my favorite stories.
1: Oh, I hate picking favorites. I got one from an older man. Men never read my stuff or listen to my podcast. So I every time I get an email, I'm like, oh God, what did I do now? And he was widowed. He is around my dad's age or the age my dad would be. He said that he found my TED talk and it was the only helpful words that he's heard since his wife died. And I just thought, you know, that's why I made it. Mm -hmm. His name was also John. I was like, that's why I made it. That TED talk was an act of passive aggression every griever to be able to pass on to the people around them and just try to get some more comfort from the people who actually do love you and care about you and want to be there for you. That really meant a lot to me. Also, a couple teenagers with dead parents. Sometimes I will meet someone back in the before times at a show. And then I'll get to see them again. They'll come to something else and I'll recognize them years later, which is the coolest thing. And I met this woman at the first and only live tour we got to do for the podcast. And I met her in in Austin. And her name was Letitia. And her son had just died by suicide. And she's one foot shorter than me. We have this photo of like me standing there. Um, I'm she's I'm six feet tall. She's five feet tall. And I was wearing, I'm pretty sure like wearing heels too. So I'm very, very much taller than her. We like kept up a correspondence and now she's going to be on the podcast in a couple weeks. So I feel like I've just, I've gotten so many relationships out of the work that I've done with, with people who have read the books or listened to the podcast. I went to Vancouver and I spent like an entire day with two people who had listened to the podcast who I had never met, but we'd exchanged some, some DMs. So I've gotten like meaningful friendships and
0: relationships out of it too. Those are the ones you've heard of or bumped into, or they reached yeah. out to you. When you have 6 million views on your TED talk, think about okay. the lives that you've touched that you will mm-hmm. not even know this side of eternity. It's just, it, it's unbelievable what is happening through this tragic story of loss and yeah. slow, gradual, agonizing healing going forward.
1: Slow too, that's the thing, slow. And that is okay. Nora,
0: we have seven questions that we guide All of our authors- okay overcomers, mountain mm-hmm. climbers, astronauts through some uh, guides through these seven. The, the very first is what is the most impactful book that you've ever read? And that oh, could have been reading while you were grieving or man, you read yeah. this in high school. That's why you went to Xavier.
1: I read Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankel. And I read it first in college when I was so deeply depressed. And um, a Christian brother who was like a sort of like a grandfatherly figure to me, sent it to me and he had studied with Viktor Frankl in his, in his youth. He sent me that book and he told me that it would change my life. And it did. It was such a huge perspective shift to Mm -hmm. the meaning of life is like life is that we are here, that we live was just so beautiful to me. And it was something that I could like go back and like touch on. I still have that first edition that I got, not a first edition, but the first paperback version that was sent to me with like my original underlines, my original dog years. And Aaron read it when he got sick. And he was like, this is, this is amazing. This is it. That is one of those books that I keep multiples of. And when I can tell somebody needs it, I give it to them.
0: Awesome. What What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in South Minneapolis that you, oh. wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Bizarre confidence.
1: I mean, it was knocked out of me by middle school. Don't worry, but like before that, I was like, "Oh, I have an idea. I'll I'll do it. I'll make it." Like I was so industrious. I pitched a newspaper, a column, when I was like in in sixth grade, and I wrote a letter, and I was like, "Yeah, so I'll be I'll be your new columnist because I looked at the masthead. You don't have any kids on staff. <laughs> Huge oversight." And I got the job. Like I just was so unafraid of hearing no that I let myself like swing for big things. And I've, I've, I've struggled to do that in a year since.
0: I, I think that little girl remains in the woman yeah. she became. So <laughs> I, I see fierceness and ferocious optimism within you. If your home caught fire and your pets mm-hmm. are out and your four mm-hmm. kids are out and your yes. current husband's out yes. and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one thing that really matters to you. what What's the one thing that you would come back outside with? I don't,
1: I don't know if it would be anything, frankly, except that I have this portrait of my dad that my grandfather painted. My grandfather wanted to be a painter, but the family business was plumbing and his brother went to medical school. So there was only one brother to take over the plumbing business. So Ott had to be a plumber and he didn't want to be a plumber. He wanted to be a painter. And in his retirement, he spent all of his time in the basement painting painting and painting and getting all of that out of his system. And I have this amazing portrait he did of my dad in the seventies.
0: If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day, Mm -hmm. overlooking a beach or mountain, your choice, and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to?
1: Oh my God. I would pick Aaron. (laughs) I'd Pick Aaron. I just want so much validation that I'm doing a good job with Ralph. I really do. I need some guidance from him. I'd want to make sure that I was like getting it right.
0: What's the best advice that Aaron or Ralph or Matthew or your dad or anybody else ever gave you? So what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: There's so many, but basically Aaron was like, who cares? Who cares? Like, it just doesn't matter. Like whatever you are worried about, who cares? Who cares? He just did not let anything derail him. In a way that I would be like fully derailed. teacher at my school used to say what other people say about you is none of your business. That might be um,
0: the answer to your next question. So what, what would you yeah. tell your 20 year old self? What, what okay. advice would you whisper into that young woman's ears?
1: I would say all of your worrying is such a waste of time because things are going to be better than you could ever imagine and harder than you could ever imagine. And you're not in control of any of it. Also, you need to break up with him. You need to be alone. (laughs) You need to stop smoking. I would tell myself to spend more time with myself. Mm. Like you are worth getting to know and getting to like and getting to love. And when you have a firmer sense of who you are, that is just like the key to everything. Like you don't have to be everyone. You don't have to do everything at all. Like You are not on this earth to like sort of earn your place here you belong already.
0: Norm McInerney, you do belong. And it has been said that all great people and writers and podcast hosts and mothers and spouses and daughters and every other role you got going on can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
1: Well, she tried.
0: (laughs) She did better than try. Nora, I want to thank you for doing far better than trying for uh, reminding us that grieving is part of life and it's okay not to race through it. It's okay to be unbelievably sad and filled with outrageous optimism at the same time.
1: They belong together. Truly being alive is an act of optimism. I don't think there's anything more optimistic than, than falling in love with somebody or loving a child, loving yourself, loving anything in this world. It's just like, an act of absolute optimism.
0: Well, my friends, that is Nora McInerney. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Be alive, be grateful, and live inspired. And now. A word from our friends at Keeley Companies. 17 years ago, I had a meeting with a gentleman named Rusty Keeley, and I shared with him that I did not know if I had what it took to become a motivational speaker, to build this business, to touch lives around St. Louis, around Missouri, maybe even as far as Illinois. And he challenged me to believe in myself, to cast a vision for impacting lives, not only in our own backyard, but around the world. Since that time, we've had the opportunity and the honor of partnering with more than 2,000 clients in 50 states, a couple dozen countries, a couple million people. We've released now a couple, that's two, number one national bestselling books and have this remarkable podcast. Thank you for listening to it because of Rusty's vision, because of his belief, because of his challenge for me to imagine this impact and to pursue it diligently It has impacted my life. And not only that, but Rusty is a sponsor today of this podcast. Keeley Companies now does more than $500 million in annual revenue through construction and infrastructure technology, wireless logistics, and development solutions. It's their world-class people-first mentality that makes the biggest impact I've seen this firsthand in my life. The team, the Keeleyans now feel in their lives, and those that are benefiting from Rusty and the Keeley work experience it in their lives. If you want to learn more about Rusty Keeley and that business, I encourage you to check out Keeleycompanies.com. KeeleyCompanies.com, or better yet, why not listen to the Live Inspired podcast where I celebrate our relationship? Check it out. It's episode 296. You'll experience there an in-depth conversation with my friend, the CEO of Keeley Companies. His name is Rusty Keeley.